all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. I mean, this is such an emerging area. I think you know, we have to be uh, honest with ourselves and, and grateful for his work because he's pioneering and entering into an area that's so, so new. We're really just beginning to understand the layers of complexity behind um, you know, the, the genetic influence um, of, of disease. And you know, he had sort of pioneered initially um, categorizing uh, this idea of, you know, genetic susceptibility, so um, identifying certain genetic uh, haplotypes related to people's, you know, essentially their, their immune system. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the symptom tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 172 with our good friend and physician, Dr. Rob Abbott. Also welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello. So here's the deal. After the last episode, we got a lot of comments about how people couldn't quite understand what Dr. Shoemaker was talking about. And to be honest, I was having a really hard time understanding too. We all did. So we called Dr. Abbott to help us interpret what Dr. Shoemaker was saying. It helps to have somebody who speaks their language. And doctors have their own secret language. Yes. <laughs> and we understand. The problem is you understand enough of it to be dangerous and really get some misunderstandings. So the conversation I'm having with Dr. Abbott to translate last week's episode is really useful. And this podcast really stands on its own. If you haven't listened to Dr. Shoemaker's interview, really, you should go back to episode 171. But if you don't want to, you can listen to this just by itself. There's enough new information and good information here that you will learn something. And, however, if you go back, you'll really learn a lot. And gain a really deeper understanding. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Aurora. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. And each week we have listeners tuning in from all over the world. This past week, we've had listeners from Sydney, Australia, to La Valette, France, and from Dragadal, Norway, to Dajin, Korea. 
How did I do on my pronunciations there? Better. Better this time? <laughs> Better. That, that, just so you all know, that was take five, I think. <laughs> <laughs> also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lime Ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening. And we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And this week, our top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10 is Ackworth, Georgia. Number 9, Granbury, Connecticut. Granby, Connecticut. Thank you. <laughs> number 8, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Number 7, Redmond, Washington. Number 6, Ward, Arkansas. Number 5, Lutwich, Australia. Yes. <laughs> number 4, Jackson, Tennessee. 3... Hermitage, Pennsylvania. Oh, now you get Hermitage. It's just Hermitage, Pennsylvania. Number two, Seattle, Washington. Number one, Marquette, Michigan. Now, Aurora's laughing at me the whole time. It's later than we normally do this. I'm tired. And to be fair, I tortured him a little bit. If you love what we're doing, make sure you head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you really love what we're doing, we've just created a Patreon account where we're taking donations to help support Lime Ninja Radio to keep us going. If you really love what we're doing, go on over to Patreon.com and search for Lime Ninja Radio and you'll see an opportunity to support us for $3 a month. And there's a higher level if you want to get some free transcripts. We've thrown that in as a bonus. Speaking of, Lime Ninja Radio proudly presents the Lime Ninja Top 10 Transcripts, the concentrated wisdom of three years of podcast episodes featuring experts like Dr. Richard Horowitz, Brenda Constantino, the Real Food Rebel, and genetic nutrition expert Bob Miller. You can get these transcripts by going to uh, our Patreon, LimeNinjaRadio.com, donating at the $10 level. Thanks, Aurora. Okay, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest and friend, Dr. Rob Abbott. Rob Abbott is a first-year family medicine resident at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Front Royal, Virginia. He graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2017. He approaches medicine from an evolutionary and functional perspective and practices what he calls, quote, spiritually focused and evolutionary informed functional medicine. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Dr. Rob Abbott, exploring last week's episode with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Dr. Abbott, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me back. You are here. I sent out an SOS. <laughs> I, of sorts. Do, do doctors still carry pagers? Oh, goodness. I wish I didn't have to. Oh, um, you, you do. So we, I paged you as a 911. So I did this interview last week with Dr. Shoemaker. And uh, I know since then you've listened to it at least once. And the discussion on Facebook was, gee, that was really interesting. But uh, what was he saying? <laughs> and there were quite a few yeah. moments in there where I had the same question and I didn't want to interrupt him too much because he's on a roll. So I tried to ask some questions to bring him back into, 
into understandable layman's terms, but he just got more and more excited and went further afield in his genetic research, which is fascinating. So I was hoping you could help not explain everything he talked about, because I think it would be like a five-hour podcast to go over the whole one-hour podcast of Dr. Shoemaker's points, but just to give us a little bit of insight so us normal folk can understand it because what some of what he talked about was pretty pretty profound on this chronic inflammatory response and what he's found and then I'll, I also think he had some fairly controversial points as well yeah certainly you know I um I will say first that um, this area is not something I am a by any means an expert in especially from a clinical perspective I am not you know routinely treating people with SIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome, I I have been exposed to it, um, I'd say for the past three years, or at least his work, uh, more in the context of Chris Kresser, um, as I've been following him and, and did his clinician training uh, last year. It's something he's quite passionate about. And a close friend of mine as well, a functional medicine doctor, Dr. Jill Carnahan, she spends a lot of her practice um, working with people with biotoxin illness or or SIRS. And so I'll point people, if they're seeking some other resources or clarity, at least here at the beginning, um, both Chris Kresser and uh, Jill Carnahan are probably um, the most accessible clinicians out there writing uh, about this and who are seeing patients regularly in the clinical setting. So have that sort of both interest from a sort of research side of things, as well as a very practical clinical perspective. Now, what did you think of Dr. Shoemaker's point that a ILADS lacks rigor and that really the diagnosis of Lyme disease is narrowly defined by these genetic markers that he sees? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a judgmental statement. I guess, you know, I, I personally haven't been to any conferences to say I've communed with those in the research setting. I mean, I've read some of the documents that have been produced um, from these meetings and by members of uh, of the group that seem to me to be of, of fairly good rigor. Um, I mean, I know he, he is very much a, a strong researcher, and that's his focus. I um you know, we talked about a little bit uh, before this, you know, there's many ways that you can go about diagnosing a illness. Um, one is simply creating uh, a clinical diagnosis. So looking at symptoms and, you know, categorizing them or organizing them in some way. He chose to, in the uh, in the podcast, um, you know, categorize a someone with Lyme disease as someone who had a positive rash, right? The EM rash. EM rash, um, which in our setting and which you've talked about numerous times before, is a very well validated, very well accepted. You know, sometimes you may not you may not even do antibody testing if you see the EM rash. You're like, yep, that's Lyme disease, um, and I'm going to you know treat you with you know, accordingly. Um, so that's one level of you know diagnosis. Uh, a second level is you know going into some form of laboratory testing. Now we, you know, in the case of Lyme disease, you know, routinely are testing antibody responses. So it's a secondary sort of indirect test. It's not testing specifically for the presence of that bacteria, but testing for an immune response. Um, he referred to a couple other, in the case of SIRS, you know, inflammatory markers. Things like TGF-beta um, and some uh, components of the complement system 
that one aspect of our immune system as markers that can be high or low in a state of uh, of chronic inflammatory response as ways to, to measure and verify. So we can, you know, diagnose a condition looking at laboratory markers, some of which are, you know, indirect. Others can be, um, you know, more direct, like specific cultures of bacteria or cultures of a, of a fungus. Um, he also then got into, and this is where it starts to get even more complex, right, is starting to diagnose a condition not on any type of, you know, serum lab or laboratory finding or culture finding or even from a clinical basis, but doing it from a genetic basis. And this is where things got can get really complicated. It's, I mean, this is such an emerging area. I think you know, we have to be uh, honest with ourselves and, and grateful for his work because he's pioneering and entering into an area that's so, so new. We're really just beginning to understand the layers of complexity behind, um, you know, the, the genetic influence um, of, of disease. And, you know, he had sort of pioneered initially um, categorizing uh, this idea of, you know, ge- genetic susceptibility. So um, identifying certain genetic uh, haplotypes related to people's, you know, essentially their their immune system. What's, hang mentioned, on, hang on. What's a haplotype? Haplotype? Yeah, it's basically just, uh, it's it's one sort of type, uh, um, one genetic variant. Um, so okay. what he was referring to specifically is something called HLA, or human leukocyte antigen. Um, essentially, these are um, uh, genes, and we have different copies. So there's won't get into the, the details of the specifics, but essentially they're they're related to the immune function um, and our ability to sort of recognize uh, our cells versus foreign cells. Um, and so these are the things like when people hear about DR4, DQ4, DQ2, you know, those are these HLA genes. And there's you know of the you know of the secondary class. Um, of the HLA uh, um, class, there's you know hundreds of different variants, um, and so that's where you get in, you can get really complicated really quickly um, looking at all of these uh, presence of these you know human leukocyte antigens. But it, it's essentially like your you know kind of capacity to respond to certain immunogenic stimuli. So isn't he also though talking about epigenetic changes? Because he's talking about genes, if, if I understood him right, that were upregulated in the presence of mold exposure, Lyme exposure. And then he tried to look at fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and couldn't find any uh, recurring pattern. What he found was a lot of noise, so a lot of different differences from people to people. Am, am I right there? Correct. So this is like where you get, where it gets really complicated. So we can look at just the gene itself. That's what the, when he was referring to all the initial research trying to um, come up with the human genetic code. We were just worried about knowing the genes, the presence of the genes. What we're coming to realize though is just because you have that gene in your code, doesn't mean that it's expressed, and in that sense, you know, uh, may not have a you know major impact positively or negatively on your health. And so there's layers of both regulation and, as he was referring to, regulation of regulation of what in our genetic code gets expressed. And so epigenetics essentially refers to one layer of regulation. Um, 
but sort of one layer of suppression or expression of certain genes that can be um, inherited, but also modified, uh, on a, you know, uh, and within our own sort of lifetime, um, that you know that changes based off of certain environmental exposures, what have you. Um, so he was referring to that level of regulation. He was also referring to, if we get back to, um, and you know, in biology, people uh, probably remember from you know college. Uh, biology, there's this whole sequence of, you know, how do we even make proteins for the body? Things like enzymes or, um, you know, these are all proteins. How does the body know what to make and where does that come from? So you have to start with the gene. You start with the DNA. And the DNA has to be uh, what's called transcribed. You have to basically turn it into uh, an mRNA. And then this mRNA can then basically go tell you, okay, this is, you know, what protein do I make? And the way that process occurs, he was alluding to this ribosome. Well, the ribosome is the is where the magic takes place. That's where the mRNA, this new script of what uh, the DNA was, it's essentially like a reverse copy um, in simple terms of that initial DNA, it finds the ribosome, they make a happy union, and then we have this whole special, like, unique code, like he was referring to, this universal code in biology of basically matching certain codons of the mRNA to certain amino acids. And you go one by one by one until you make a full chain and a full protein. That protein will then go and, you know, or that chain will then go to um, uh, a different component of a different organelle, the, the endoplasmic reticulum, and be folded to actually become something functional and then get sent to the body, so, some part of the cell where, you know, it's used. Um, but uh, he was really focusing on that step at the ribosome, interestingly, where that protein's even being made. Um, but we have to go through this whole sequence of starting from the DNA, creating an mRNA, having that interact with a tRNA, which is essentially building the protein. And then we have to then fold the protein, this whole special process of folding the protein, and then it can go and do its function. We can measure or attempt to measure aspects of that step. So we've looked at the DNA, we've looked at the gene. What he was referring to in terms of transcriptomics, the transcription, is that mRNA. We can measure that mRNA present, and that's potentially a better reflection of what's actually happening, not just the presence of the DNA, but what of the DNA is being expressed. And we can infer and match that mRNA to what eventual protein. So essentially, we have this whole linear process where we can look at the DNA, we can look at the mRNA, and look at the protein, and we can see, are, do they all correlate? Is there um, you know, an increased level of mRNA risk corresponding to that resultant protein? Um, I'll stop there because it was maybe a little too intense, but well, I, I hope people see yeah. the... Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the beauty of it and the, and the power of it. So he's talking... So first, let me just clarify my understanding he's talking about the the transcription the ribosomal function of this the the mrna part or somewhere around there let's just say correct in the ballpark so it's it's not the dna itself it's the activity of the dna being expressed and actually making a protein so 
to oversimplify, it's like some people with brown eyes have the blue eye gene, but it's not doing anything, obviously, because they have brown eyes. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's just complete oversimplification. The gene's there, but it's not turned on. They're not making the pigment or the lack of pigment to make the eyes blue or however that works. So that's, exactly. that's the level of stuff. So he's talking, so when he's talking about genetic being turned on or abnormal, he's talking about the genes being expressed, turned on, starting to make stuff and measuring the, the, the ribosomal part of this with his, with his machinery to see which genes are actually activated. And he says, with Lyme disease, the 750 of these genes get turned on. Now, one very interesting thing that he brought up, and I think this is has to begin to inform treatment strategies, is so the 750 genes that are turned on is the body's natural response. It's not abnormal. It's like you get sick and the body has to do something different. You've got an active infection. The body has exactly. to act in different ways. It's not abnormal, but you don't want to keep these. Obviously, if you, you don't want to keep these turned on over extended period of time, especially after the infection's cleared. And that seems to be a problem. But what's interesting that points out is that after taking antibiotics, more genes are turned on. So in his mind, he's viewing these diseases as a genomics issue, right? And that adding more treatment in this case pushes the body farther away, further away from baseline. Exactly. So, and, and those genes, I think what he's, I, I cannot be a hundred percent certain, but the way he describes it and his, uh, for his testing, I'm pretty sure is looking at that mRNA component. Yes. That's how, that's the measure. I keep of, saying genes and it's, it's inaccurate in my part, but it's, it's what pops out of my brain. So yes, the mRNA. Correct. And that's what we're basically courting, the expression. And you're right. All of these things are, are patterns. So if you think about it back to our model of what's the end goal of this whole process to make some, you know, protein, make some functional unit. When you have an infection, we need to make a lot of immune cells. We need a lot of machinery enzymes in those cells to do the job. So you need to be able to turn on, right? those genes. And so it makes sense that we're going to see a pattern of expression of relative immune upregulation in the setting of you know, uh, an infection or some biotoxin in this case that's stimulating or causing this response. What we don't, what we don't want, right, is uh, the persistence of this response when uh, and as it can sort of, you know, it's basically going to con- contribute to overall stress through the system, through the system. You know, one of the major interesting theories, not to insert anything too new, but, um, there's a whole area of research looking at rough endoplasmic reticulum stress, which is essentially rough ER is, it's, it's the, um, it's the site of protein folding and it, it's called rough because it has the ribosomes. You look under a microscope, it looks rough because it has the the ribosomes. And that's that protein, you know, manufacturing facility. That's where it's happening. But actually, you know, one of the body's responses in a a state when it feels overwhelmed in the state of sort of rough ER stress is to basically, you know, try to get rid of the misfolded proteins or stop this whole cascade because it's saying, I can't handle this right now. Um, and the cell will eventually, eventually die. And there's a lot of research looking at, you know, neurodegeneration cancer, some of these major illnesses that you know we brought up in the context of sort of maybe some mitochondrial concerns as well. Um, but that's one area that is being, you know, looked at. 
it sort of is inter, you know is interplayed in this uh, in this complex of um, you know DNA to mRNA to protein. Something he didn't mention in this specific podcast, but he's mentioned in others. I, I don't think he mentioned um, was that next layer of uh, of regulation. Well, how do we decide so that so the the gene is on? We're making it. We have the mRNA. We like we want to make the protein, but there is this next level of you know once the mRNA is made, there's there can be additional modifications or even uh, an additional step where you basically destroy the mRNA, where, you know, the, the gene says, I want to be made, but then this other element called a microRNA basically comes in and degrades the mRNA and says, nope, no, you're not, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to make it through to uh, creating this protein. And so you can measure, that's his regulation of kind of regulation, is you can even start to measure now specific microRNAs um, and, and their relative activity. And so to really get a picture of what's going on, you might want to know the gene, the microRNA, the mRNA, and the protein are related to the sort of the, the, the ribosomal unit. And it's just, to me, I mean, I feel like I have a decent grasp of it, and it, it but it, it still blows my mind. I'm, um, it's hard for me sometimes to even understand all these levels. But we're starting to look at each of these stages um, in different disease states and trying to identify a certain pattern of expression, either of mRNA, of you know the presence of a gene, the amount of a protein, or even the presence of a you know a reg- amount of microRNA, um, it, it blows my mind. So <laughs> if it's blowing anyone else's mind, you're in the same boat. We're in good company. It brings me back to the fact that there was so much excitement about when they started sequencing the human genome, and they finally got it sequenced, and it was going to unlock all these mysteries, and basically. The researchers looked at the correlations and went, duh, there's nothing there. And that's an oversimplification. They, they did find lots of things, but not nearly what they thought. They thought it was going to be unlocking like brown eyes, blue eyes. And you could just go down the genome and say, yep, here's the disease, here's a disease, here's a disease. And what you've just said, and if you don't understand it out there, you know, I kind of hung out for the ride, like going fast down an icy slope that basically it's complicated. That's all you need to know. It's really, really complicated. And there's a lot more than just having a gene, having a gene. Yeah. Now, okay. You go first. Yeah. And I think I was going to interject one more thing here, because I think it's probably the best place to put it. Um, I've talked about these different levels of diagnosis, right? Level of, you know, clinical diagnosis, sort of a level of, you know, a blood test, or an indirect or direct diagnosis, then looking at these levels of, of genetics, we can use the same approach at what level are we diagnosing a disease in terms of, and, uh, and compare that to what level are we intervening for treatment? He was referring to quite a bit in the podcast, his treatment with, with VIP, um, or his perception of to get to the real root cause, I need to treat at the genomic level. Right. in order to really impact. And the reality is that this whole cascade started from a peripheral trigger, a biotoxin, an infection. If our body couldn't change uh, a response, an immunologic response or change genetic genetic expression based on something in the periphery, then we, we would be like, we wouldn't be able to survive. We'd be a so rock. To think, yeah. yeah. So to think we have to intervene at the level of, or, or seek treatments at that level of, you know, genetic expression or 
regulation of genetic expression in order to fix the whole problem is missing the fact that we disturb the system from a peripheral stimulus. And if you ask him and in his protocol, the number one thing that you have to do in someone who is treated with SIRS that you know, you're concerned for a mycotoxin or biotoxin exposure is remove the biotoxin, right? Get rid of the stimulus. Right. And that had nothing to do with the genetic expression or, you know, entering it at the level of the genetic expression. It's get rid of the stimulus, get rid of the mold or get rid of your exposure to that biotoxin. That's the critical piece. Well, in, in his defense, that's step one of the protocol is remove the exposure of, of his SIRS protocol. And Obviously, what you want to then see, and I'm going to defend him a little bit here, because I agree. I mean, your genes change when you wake up in the morning, the expression of your genes, not your genes. Your genetics are set, right? But the expression of the genes, it, they change throughout the day. It's it's how the body operates. But because we have these tools to measure it, it's really exciting to see, okay, what, you know, what happens when you stub your toe? You know, what, what genes yeah. get turned on? You know, what, what genes get turned on when you're in love? What genes not turned on expressed, right? This, this whole mic, not microRNA, but the, uh, the ribosomal, the mRNA is like what genes are being used to create different proteins when you're in love, when you're angry, when you're listening to music. It's almost like when we got the functional MRIs and could see what the brain was doing, how much blood and oxygen the brain was consuming. We got to see all these different patterns. It's very, very exciting. This is just the same thing. It's just another look at what's already been going on. And successful treatments are going to downregulate these genes because the genes don't need to be regulated. Now, in some people, these gene switches might be sticky, Right. And for some reason, they get turned on and they stay turned on. And then maybe then you need some treatments that can get in there and and seeing whether they're actually still being expressed might be a better measure than some other markers than we have at the time to see whether the treatments are successful in bringing bringing the person down to baseline. Exactly. And we have to do it in the context of the person's clinical symptoms, correct? Like, you know, we hopefully are seeing, you know, we would want to correlate. In his case, I hopefully would see correlation of, you know, uh, improved expression of those genes or correction, as he was saying, like of expression of those genes correlating with the person getting better. I mean, in clinical medicine, that's obviously what you're focused on. And exactly right. We, we need to, you know, you're going to have to work with people to see some of them may require a higher level of intervention. You know, his protocol and what I've been presented um, from you know, my training with Chris Kresser and uh, and in talking to Joe Carnahan, you know, one of their main treatments is it is biotoxin focused. It's trying to remove the exposure. They use cholestyramine, which is a bile acid bile acid sequestrant medicine, um, really actually used somewhat in, in, to try to lower cholesterol, but it's great at essentially sort of um, removing a lot of, uh, you know, quote unquote, toxins from the body. Ph- pharmacists hate it because it just, like, you have to take it away from all medicines and supplements because it just interacts with everything. Um, but that's one of the, you know, the key medicines that uh, is part of the protocol. And then secondarily is actually, you know, using a, some sort of uh, kind of activated charcoal or a binder with uh, clay. So you had um, oh, uh, Rachel Fresco on, um, the, who, who 
the you know president of biobotanicals using you know biocidin um, and GI detox. So that product, the GI detox, is something that both Cresser um, and and our, I believe Cresser and um, Joe Carnahan use um, because it's a activated charcoal and clay as sort of a binder to help um, to eliminate some of the the, the biotoxin um, from the from the body um, in addition to the cholestyramine and that's sort of first level you know first level treatment uh, for somebody who you're worried about has you know SIRS or biotoxin illness if that's not as successful then you can start to add on layers of and that's where I think some of the things that he's doing now are providing tons of hope for people who you know maybe have worse neurologic damage um, and you're needing to intervene with you know, nasal, vaso, uh, active intestinal peptide because you need to get something into the central nervous system. You need to get something into the brain. And that's about as directive, you know, and minimally evasive, but as directive a, a way to get it there as you can. Um, so having layers of capacity to do treatment, I think is, is really important when you have a whole spectrum of, of illness. I have two questions. The first is a speculation. Based on you talking about the cholestyramine, is that the name of the drug? Correct. And it absorbs LDL, I'm assuming, right? Or in in the intestines, or just any anything that the liver is pumping out there. So it's essentially, like I said, it's, it's sort of a a bile acid sequestrant. You know, okay. a pharmacist would be able to give you a better, like, you know, it's basically used as a, you know. Bile acids have a bunch of different components. I mean, they have cholesterol, they have phospholipids, they have, um, you know, what we really think more of as, you know, bile, bili- they have bilirubin, there's, you know, fat soluble, you know, there's, there's like 8 billion things in them. Yeah. Um, and we actually, you know, we use them for, uh, for other means. But yes, that's one way to basically, uh, the reason it's used in, you know, as a cholesterol lowering medicine is because you're basically getting rid of, um, uh, you know, cholesterol with this, this bile acid, um, sequestrant. Yeah. You bind it and poop it out. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Faster than you make it. Is it possible that some of these strange, like super high LDL numbers or the body trying to sequester some of these toxins? Yes. So, I mean, we do know that these, you know, lipoproteins are upregulated in infections. I mean, when people come in with acute major infections, um, we increase, uh, I think there's an increase in um, serum fatty acids and, and LDL. There's a, there's an inflammatory response. And he talked a little bit about oxidized LDL, I believe. And yeah, I got him on a side thing on that. And he, yeah, it was one of the things he got excited about and got into the whole damage pathway that gets done to the endothelial cells, your, your, your blood vessel walls. Yeah. So no, they, it's something that is very much involved in, you know, an acute and even chronic setting. Um, and that's where, uh, I think a, a, a functional perspective or an expanded perspective, people will see LDL is not just simply a marker of, you know, or they'll, they'll recognize that, you know, LDL cholesterol is just a measure of the amount of cholesterol in the LDL particle. What I'm really interested in is the number of particles and what is that particle doing as he described and what sort of state is that particle in? Is it damaged? Is it oxidized? Um, because that's really what, uh, you know, that as a lipoprotein, I mean, that's essentially its job. It's, it's a protein carrying fats. Um, so the, one of the major fats it carries is cholesterol. Um, so, but it, it has a lot of other functions as a fat carrying protein in these sort of acute and even chronic inflammatory states. Interesting. So it's either upregulating to help heal 
or or some other functions that we're not sure about. So and and so this is again still on this this tangent here. So if, if your body naturally and obviously the genes you're getting turned on in this case, right? Your body's creating more of it. So these particular genes are getting up upregulated and then you got your mRNA and going and folding the proteins and all going out. So that's upregulated. If you're taking a statin which interferes with these pathways, are you preventing your body from from healing, and so many people are on statins these days. So if you've got an infection in statin, you know I'd be scratching my head, thinking, well, you know, maybe there's a, maybe it's better to bind it on the other side with the cole cholesterol. What is it? Cholestyramine. Yeah. You got it. <laughs> cholestyramine on and bind it and get it out rather than block the pathway because it's got to do some job in the body, right? Yeah, you know, interestingly, from a mechanistic standpoint, I'm I. I'm much more interested in medicines that are, you know, aren't really affecting uh, directly physiology. Like a statin is basically blocking an enzyme in the cholesterol synthesis pathway. This bile acid sequestrant is basically, you know, trying to sequester bile acids in the, you know, intestine. I mean, it's obviously disrupting things. It can disrupt things, you know, uh, um, <laughs> and cause worse problems than a, right. a stat medicine because it, you know, has such, you know, common interactions, but you have to at least like think about what, what's the mechanism of that, uh, of that drug. And in this case, you know, one of them is directly, you know, blocking a enzymatic function. And, you know, interestingly, the, the way that these statins lower LDL cholesterol or lower cholesterol is you know, by blocking cholesterol synthesis that you get this upregulation of um, receptors in the liver. So basically, they're able to take up more LDL um, from the from the periphery. Um, that's really the, the when it gets down to the true mechanism of how these. Well, one of the mechanisms of how the it lowers cholesterol in the body, which I think you know potentially recycling of LDL could be a. a um, could be helpful for other means as we sort of been speculating here. I don't, I honestly don't I haven't researched enough to, to really dig into it, but let's, yeah. in, some speculation. Yeah. I don't know how much has been done on that side of things. So much is just on the, on the heart disease side of things. Moving right along, kind of, and I want to kind of wrap up here because I want to respect your time here and I don't want to turn this into another overwhelming podcast on biochemistry. <laughs> Sorry, but I think we're doing a really good job of, of, of taking these major points and simplifying why they're important and why Dr. Shoemaker's excited about things and why his approach and what he's learning is worth taking a deeper look at. Uh, and there, there are other writings out there. You can find his protocol out there. He puts out a new research paper every couple of months. And if you go on his website, you can see those. So he's got a lot of stuff out there you can read, um, and kind of get up to speed if, if you're a geek like I am. My last. He does have a lot. Yeah. And, um, before you get to your last question, okay. and maybe I'm like, I'm just jumping ahead of things, but, um, you know, his, what he's trying to articulate, is something actually quite similar to what one of your previous guests, um, you know, Morley Robbins is sort of looking into is can we identify a common, some degree of a, you know, common final pathway behind multiple clinical disease states? Um, cause that to some degree is some holy grail. Um, if you can find some, you know, common pathway that, you know, uh, brings some degree of synchrony to, you know, multiple disease states that we have don't have a great understanding of, um, you know, in his paper, 
or some, you know, several of his uh, main papers are collaborative papers. Um, he basically, you know, describes that, you know, his research started with this biotoxin illness related to, um, like, originally a dinoflagellate um, in the estuary waters um, in Maryland and, 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 and in Virginia in his region of practice. And then that sort of later expanded into trying to identify potentially other triggers to this common final pathway. And that's what sort of led him into, in a discussion with you, looking at Lyme. Because there does seem to be at least a, a portion of people who manifest similar symptoms or will have similar laboratory findings um, as to those that have sort of a known you know, true biotoxin in, in terms of this sort of uh, aquatic biotoxin or mold exposure. And so there is some overlap. And then there's even this next layer of people having both a mold exposure and potentially a, another triggering event, a tick-borne infection, you know, Bartonella, Babesia, something like that. Um, but he's trying to create this common, you know, understand a common final pathway and starting to pick out potentially certain you know, or different triggering events that lead to this common cascade. So I hope people see that, you know, at least for you in the context of like, look, we're, we're kind of interested in Lyme disease. We're sort of interested in, in tick-borne illnesses. This is sort of one, you know, one potentially triggering pathway or one area within this grander scope of things that may lead to this chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Now, that gets back to his point that in his studies, he basically threw out test results from hygienics because the people from hygienics, clearly they're sick and clearly they have some sort of infection, but they don't fit narrowly into the genetic response that he's looking at, this SIRS that he sees particularly. So from his point of view, it's like, okay, he talks about his noise. Let's, you know, that's, that's a typical researcher. You want to get rid of the noise and just want a clean signal. And, the, you know, he's, the, the interesting things happen in the noise on the edge <laughs> things are fuzzy, yeah. right? And he's def, I mean, he's definitely onto, onto something in this particular group of pathways that get activated with these this chronic inflammatory response and his tr the other thing is his treatment particularly works with this group of of responses so in one way he's smart to to narrow the focus narrow the funnel for which he's taking patients that that it'll work with and obviously he's not practicing anymore but with his his research and with the people he's training but it does, so it doesn't help anybody. It's, it's one narrow slice. So if you fit in that criteria, you know, it'd be great if there were some simple test to be done. It's like, yep. Well, he said basically, if you've got a, a Western blot from, gee, what were the two labs? Uh, I think from Stony, Stony Brook, Stony and, Brook uh, and, uh, and Robert uh, Rob, Wood Johnson. Robert Wood Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Or if you had erythema rash, it's like you fit into the category where you probably should be looking up somebody who's trained with uh, Dr. Shoemaker if you're still suffering from problems. Everybody else, well, we'll just have to keep exploring till, <laughs> till we find things. But the last question I wanted to ask you about, he was very, he also got very animated when he talked about the mitochondrial damage that's done by tetracycline and doxycycline. And he, yes. called, that, he called them macrolides. Is that a Ma macrolides with a D lides. L I D E S. Okay. And that's a, a, a group of antibiotics, right? A type of antibiotic. Yeah. I've actually, I've talked about it before when one of our podcasts, I was hoping you would go here. Um, so it's, this is a new area for, for me as well. Um, 
But when you started talking about mitochondria, I think you asked a question about, you know, mitochondrial dysregulation in cancer uh, or, um, you know, like insulin resistance. Is that something that's, you know, is that is that the same? And he said, I think, it's no, not, it's, it's, it's different. different. Yeah, he said it's different. Yeah. So I'll give a perspective here. And this is something I may ruffle some fe- some feathers. I know it's definitely a a big concept um, or a new concept in the sort of integrative functional space, this idea of, you know, my, mitochondrial dysregulation or, or my mitochondria are, are um, dysfunctioning, especially in the context of sort of concern with neurodegeneration and um and like insulin resistance, so people with diabetes or problems with you know blood sugar, and this whole idea of like, oh well, my mitochondria aren't working well, so I need to then switch to a you know ketogenic diet. And the reality is, um, you know, <laughs> the the ketogenic diet is focused on fat you know, digestion and utilizing fat for fuel to then kind of make ketones. And fat, the way you get energy from fat is uh, it starts with beta oxidation, and that happens in the mitochondria. Um, so to say you're like mitochondria aren't working um, and you need to switch from a you know lots of sugar or carbs in your diet to then eating fat, um, the mitochondria still has to work to, to use fat as fuel, and you're still using a common pathway of um, the electron transport chain, which is in the mitochondria. So, like when we just throw around terms of like mitochondrial dysregulation, and I'm sure I've done it numerous times, um, it's a little vague and doesn't really convey what's going on because right. um, you can have issues with you know lack of you know uh, certain cofactors, certain cofactor nutrients um, involved in that whole cascade. But simply saying, you know, my mitochondria are dysregulated, especially in this context of needing to go from or wanting to go from a more traditional diet to this sort of ketogenic fat diet, all, all that's still happening. These specific steps, anyway, are happening in the mitochondria. So your mitochondria is obviously working. Well, let's say mitochondrial dysfunction is garbage can term similar to arthritis. <laughs> yeah. Right. About as, as minimally yeah, helpful. Exactly. And, and just so everybody knows, so fuel has to get into the mitochondria and there's the glucose pathway, basically glucose pathway. And then there's the fat pathway and they are different pathways. So if you have a problem with the glucose pathway, switching over to being able to burn some more fat might might be helpful in defense of the exactly. ketogenic diet. But if the, if it's the mitochondria itself and there are kind of four phases within the mitochondria, they, they've broken it down into four phases. And if there's a problem with one of those four phases, then you're, you're going to have some issues there. And what back to Dr. Shoemaker, he, he was talking about not the mitochondria itself, but our, our bodies within the, our cells, we have some genes that talk to our mitochondria. And he was saying that these antibiotics negatively affect the regulation of these human nuclear DNA transcriptions and not the mitochondria itself. So it's somehow interfering with how our cells talk to the mitochondria. And he got into a little bit, we, we talked about this too, about mitochondria or these proto-bacteria that somehow got sucked into the our own cells billions of years ago and, and made it nice with the, the rest of the cells and allow us to use oxygen as a fuel source. 
So it's, yeah. he's, again, he's pushing, he's pushing boundaries and he's looking at it again from his specialized tool, right? He's got his one microscope and it's looking in this one area in the body and it's these ribosomal, this mRNA activity within the body. And he says, yeah, I see that regularly after these antibiotics is that this human DNA, nuclear DNA that deals with mitochondria is affected. Yeah. And so after I heard that, I had delved into this a little bit prior to that podcast, but I wanted to look into it more because it was something new to me. Um, and I'll see if I can bring a degree of clarity um, to two or three aspects of what you just described. So yes, if we believe in this sort of symbiotic theory where we engulfed a bacteria and essentially, that's what this sort of mitochondria is, is kind of a remnant of a previous bacteria. Um, then uh, that's sort of um, where he's you know, seeing it almost as I can look at the mitochondria as a bacteria. So insert antibiotic. So if an antibiotic is targeting some aspects of bacterial function, and the two that he specifically mentioned their mechanisms, at least as we understand it, the tetracyclines, which include doxycycline, the main drug in Lyme disease treatment, it affects the attachment of that tRNA, that little guy that carries one amino acid matched to one uh, codon in the mRNA, that which is occurring on the ribosome. It basically blocks that first guy from even getting in there. It blocks the tRNA. In, this is in bacterial you know, protein synthesis, our understanding anyway, is that it's blocking that tRNA from essentially docking into the, the ribosomal subunit with the mRNA hanging out. And so you can't make the protein. So then guess what happens to the bacteria? Can't make, can't make the protein, so it dies. So if you see the mitochondria as an equivalent to bacteria, then, and, and interestingly, the mitochondria can make its own protein there it has its own machinery independent of the nucleus it has its own mitochondrial dna its own mitochondrial rna and its own and it does have these ribosomes that he was describing it has the machinery to produce specific uh mitochondrial proteins now our understanding is there's only like 12 or 13 proteins produced from this mitochondrial DNA through that machinery. And they're all related to oxidative phosphorylation, that energy production you know, side of things, that coupling of whatever you choose, glucose or fat, to then get to the electron transport chain and make a tremendous amount of, of ATP. Those, you know, it's like, like I said, I think it's 12 or 13 proteins, but the mitochondria has all of that machinery. But What's interesting is it can't do it on its own. It needs things, proteins encoded by the nuclear DNA in order to get all of the components, the, the chaperones, the enzymes to actually complete that whole process. So the mitochondria itself really isn't making the, the end product 
you know, encoded in its DNA, there, there's only like, like I said, 12 or 13 proteins. It needs the, the nucleus. And I think our predictions at this point, based on two papers I was reading, are like, you know, somewhere on like 200 or 300 proteins and pro- these protein-related genes in the, that, that are in the nucleus that are required to be expressed in order for that mitochondria to function. So my understanding is, for him, is he's seeing dysregulation, right, of that nuclear-encoded, those proteins that need to be created in order for that mitochondria to be fully, you know, operational and for it to actually produce the its small set of uh, proteins related to, you know, energy production. And that if you think of the mitochondria as a bacteria in evolutionary history, then antibiotics that disrupt that ribosomal machinery, that ability to produce proteins could theoretically, I think it's, I, I don't, I don't see that there's any direct evidence. I haven't found any yet. I need to probably do some more research, but theoretically could disrupt that in a human cell. That's fascinating. Last sidebar promise. So I recently had a couple patients come in with pretty strong GI responses to antibiotics. So normally my thought is, well, it's disrupting the gut biome. And so there's some die off there and that's irritating the gut. And so of course you're going to get diarrhea, but the endothelial cells in the intestines are shedding like crazy. Isn't that one of like the busiest parts of the body, right? Is every four or five days regenerating this. So if you're messing with, the mitochondria of these cells, the integrity of your gut lining is going to get degraded as well as this disruption in the bacteria uh, in there. So there, you might be a, there might be a double-edged whammy going on there. No, it's, there could be, I mean, there could be a triple-edged whammy. Um, so could, what's number three? <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I, uh, I still bring this back to, you know, as we've, I think, talked about before, I mean, I wish it could be very simple, but when I start to like look at the you know, immune response and immune regulation, and when I say immune regulation, you know, genetics is tied in there, like we've been talking about turning on the production of making immune cells in the first place. Um, we've talked about mineral mineral metabolism with Morley Robbins and the cells needing these minerals in order to carry out, um, you know, energy production and for enzymatic function. Um, you know, when I look at his, uh, with Richie Shoemaker's theories and when he throws in the mitochondrial dysregulation, our, our lovely term, um, our dysfunction of these, uh, of this nuclear encoded proteins, I'm starting to see like, well, one potential common pathway is if, if, if the mitochondria is, is affected in that way and it cannot produce, you know, energy, uh, to the degree that it needs to, then what suffers, right, is basically every cell of the body. I mean, that's what we need in order to detoxify and to, to, to replicate. You know, when we're talking about replication in the gut, if you don't have the, the energy and the machinery to make new cells, then you're not going to turn things over, um, and not going to be able to repair. I mean, that's one of the main issues that we see in, you know, diabetes. It's poor wound healing. Well, it's actually more of an um, immune issue in this issue, in an issue with, you know, 
uh, energy production, I think, um, is that, you know, and there's also nutrient deficiencies. It's, I mean, it's complicated, but you're seeing, uh, what, you know, basically the, the cell isn't able to carry out all the enzymatic functions. And so it has to decide, well, what's the most important one to do? And so it's cert- so certain things, you know, pull it back from what it can do, uh, how it can optimize, you know, um, how it can function optimally. Let's end there. It's absolutely intertwined. It's funny that, you know, as an act, I, I joke that, uh, with my patients, Sometimes they complain, yeah, you know, every time I go to the doctor, they give me a new pill. It's like, well, you know, that's what doctors, that's the tool they have. I said, you come to me, you're going to get a new needle. You go to a surgeon, <laughs> you know, you go to a surgeon, you're going to get surgery. It's just the way it works. And, and these researchers that we've come across, they have one of the nice explanations I've heard of health in the body is it's, it's a home, it's a house. And depending on what window you look through, kind of goes back to Plato in the cave, right? You can never see actually the entirety of the house. You can only see what part of the house you're looking through the window and you never see the whole thing. So all these tools to look at the body, what's going on are one particular window we look through and it's never the whole picture. And it's tempting to think that, yeah, you found the most important window. And, you know, in some cases it is, you know, if there's a, uh, a leak in the, the kitchen and you look through the kitchen window and you see the leak, you say, aha, you know, we can, we can solve it. But if there's a leak in the upstairs bedroom and you look in the kitchen and the water's not coming down through the, well, it's, it's not there, but you need, you need a different set of tools to be able to, to look at the body. And if we ever get to the, the case where it's a, you know, Star Trek tricoder where you can look at all windows all at the same time <laughs> and spit out, you know, a proper diagnosis and then treat at the same time, you know, we'll, we'll truly hit the, hit the holy grail there in terms of healthcare. But it, we seem to be quite a ways off. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for help illuminating this very complicated health podcast that we did last week and translating to something that I can understand better. I know I feel more comfortable understanding what Dr. Shoemaker has been talking about. And you bring up some very interesting thing with other people are doing similar treatment, clinical work with SIRS, which is just the chronic inflammatory response. And, and that's what that stands for. So don't get tripped up on that either. And these exact pathways are interesting for researchers and some of them may be clinically rev- relevant and some of them may not be. And if you want to get deeper into Dr. Shoemaker's work, just Google him. There's tons of stuff out there. And we'll also have links to who were the people you were talking about, Dr. Chris Kresser and who else? Yeah, so, well, so Chris, Chris is an ac- actually an acupuncturist. acupuncturist right? uh, yeah. And then uh, Jill Carnahan, she's uh, actually uh, board certified in family medicine, but doing sort of functional medicine out in, um, in Colorado. The two of them, I would say, are, um, have some of the best protocols and clinical understanding of working with patients with, with SIRS and biotoxin illness. And fabulous. And why don't you, since you're here again, thank you very much. Let people know about your podcast and your website and because you're just a wonderful resource and a wonderful person. And if you're anywhere out where this young man ends up practicing medicine, get in line, get in his practice. Oh my goodness. You're, you've been incredibly gracious uh, just from the beginning. Um, hopefully your audience isn't getting too bored of my shenanigans, but I am, um, yeah, currently in 
Front Royal, Virginia, um, in the sort of Shenandoah Valley area. I will say some exciting news. I've been uh, working with two of my close friends uh, to actually kind of have the initial start of our functional medicine center in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, So we're kind of focusing, at least initially, as I'm still in residency training, doing community education workshops, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I, my, my future is going to be, hopefully, uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, exp- for, you know, continuing to further expand that you know, functional clinic. And who knows what we'll, you know, what we'll end up doing you know, two, three, five, ten years from now. But that's where I'm hoping to you know, call home and, and continue to grow this movement. My, um, my webpage uh, is amedicinalmind.com. Uh, and there I have a podcast as well, um, where I'm, you know, have different kind of conversations. Some of them very technical and medical, others a little more spiritual. But um, have you know weekly podcasts with with different folks who I find you know just trying to stimulate a curious conversation. So you can you know, follow me in in those areas. And yeah, I just thank you. This is like um, it's funny how I feel like. It was just a couple of months ago that we crossed paths, and to think that you know what has come in our friendship and grown from there is is pretty tremendous. So I'll be honest with you, uh, Dad just got off the phone with Rob Abbott mm, fifteen minutes ago, and we're report and we're recording this uh, right away before I normally. And what I usually do is I get a chance to listen through, edit more carefully, and uh, get some takeaways. But unfortunately. Or rather, fortunately, because we wanted to get this out to you as quickly as possible, I have not had a chance to do that. Right. Aurora produces these podcasts and makes me sound 10 times as smart as I actually am by removing lots of ums and ahs and awkward pauses and strange things like that that happen in a natural phone conversation. And we don't have a chance to do this time. So you're getting Lime Ninja Radio raw and unplugged. Hopefully. As raw as it's going to get. Yes. So if you've noticed things were a little bit different on this podcast, hopefully not too bad. After 172 interviews, you'd think I'd have some speaking skills developed, but sometimes it just leaks through. (laughs) Anyway, if you have feedback or questions about this episode or anything we're doing, please send it to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. You can also leave a comment on our Facebook page under the episode, which is 172. Also, if you don't know your Lime score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash tracker and fill out the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free. Thanks, Aurora. And our top 10 transcripts available for those of you who join us at patreon.com. Just search for Lime Ninja Radio at the $10 level. We appreciate all you out there and the support you give us, whether it's moral or financial. Thanks for listening. Also, I'm going to be at the Midcoast Lime Conference April 28th as the MC. If you don't have plans to get there, Change your plans. Make some plans. Come on out. It's going to be a great time. We're going to have fun. Lots of great speakers. 
Most of them have been guests here on Lime Ninja Radio, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on as the conference comes closer. But mark that date out, that weekend out, April 28th. It's a Saturday. And last, as you long-time Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know... Psychics can bend spoons with their minds, but only ninjas can bend minds with a spoon. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.